Okay, so welcome back to our third Sunday School class in this series, uh, Key Figures in the Reformation. So I'm going to start with a few questions, rhetorical questions. What about God's grace powerfully working through a man would cause him to do more to change the course of his nation's history, maybe more than any other person? What about God's grace powerfully working through a man would cause him 31 years after his death to be condemned on 260 counts of heresy, have his remains dug up, burned along with his writings and thrown into a river? What about God's grace powerfully working through a man would cause him to be regarded as the morning star of the reformation? Well, that grace was of God, and the word he held to was the word of God. And that man was John Wycliffe, the pre-reformer we'll look at today in our study on these figures of the Reformation. So first, I want to give, and you'll see on your sheet there, um, I want to give sort of a, a backdrop, a context, his context, and then we'll look at his life, and then we'll look at his theology. So a backdrop, his context, his life, and his theology. Again, we're looking at John Wycliffe. So in the fourth century, uh, the rebirth of classical uh, culture known as the Renaissance was beginning to sort of blossom. So at its core, the Renaissance emphasized confidence in the power of man's intellect. And in this context, humanism developed as an intellectual movement and it was in reaction to the traditional academic curriculum, which was more popular and common in the scholastic period. So what I'm saying is scholasticism uh, can be defined as a combination of religion and traditional academic curriculum, which was uh, basically tied to um, Augustinian thought and Aristotelian thought, okay? So in this context, the intellectual movement, which was a movement away from scholasticism, so this new movement of uh, the power of man's intellect over and against um, medieval and traditional thought of scholasticism and theology, which was tied to Augustinian thought, which we'll talk about, and Aristotelian thought. So there are sort of two opposing, somewhat opposing ideas. Man's intellect, and traditional uh, doctrine and teaching and the thought which began with God. One begins with man, one begins with God, in a sense. Um, Okay, so these men were known, these men who, um, it was in this context sort of that the seed of the Reformation sprang. This was the context, this new thinking of the intellect and the power of man's intellect over and against um, the traditional medieval thinking of doctrine and dogma or decrees. So these men were known as the forerunners of the Reformation or the pre-reformers, Wycliffe. They were committed to the authority of God's word in opposition to the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. So Alistair McGrath, who's a professor of science and religion at Oxford University, says here that there was an increasing conviction in this time that scripture was the sole material base of Christian theology. He says that there was a deepening certainty that scripture contained all that is necessary for salvation. What does that sound like? 
last Sunday school class, Bibliology. Remember, the sufficiency and necessity of scripture. I won't blame you for not knowing that, that's okay. Although I taught that class. Maybe I didn't do a good job. <laughs> so with this sort of developing and growing commitment to Sola Scriptura, it is almost inevitable that the doctrines of grace would sort of receive this um, new attention and be sort of resurrected and really become the starting blocks for the runners of the Reformation. Or to put it another way, the doctrines of grace would become the pillars that held up the structure of theology of the Reformation. So the pre-reformers helped bring an Augustinian, there's that name again, Augustine, Augustinian recovery that really paved the way for the Reformation. So what does Augustine and Augustinian thought or recovery have to do with the Reformation? We'll look at this more, but just briefly here. Um, Aurelius Augustinus, uh, better known as Augustine, was a third, fourth century theologian from North Africa. So Augustine is regarded by some as the most influential theologian in the history of the post-apostolic church. The most influential theologian in the history of the post-apostolic church. Herman Boving said that Augustine was the first to develop the doctrine of grace. Not the doctrines of grace, but the doctrine of grace taken not in a sense of divine attribute, but in a sense of the benefits which God bestows to Christians through Christ, to his church through Christ. So he's saying that Augustine was the first to develop this idea of, uh, or a structure for divine grace, not divine grace of the nature of God himself. God is grace. He doesn't do gracious things. He, he it is in his nature, everything he is, he is of himself, he's a simple God. So he's not saying that um, Augustinian developed this divine grace in the sense of God proper, theology proper, but he developed this in a sense of what does it look like for that grace to be given to the church through Christ? Um, and that has a lot of lines that go out from it, from that idea. But this was somewhat of the foundation of the thought of these men in the Reformation. Um, Augustine taught that human nature had been so completely corrupted by the fall of Adam that no one in and of himself had the ability to obey either the law or the gospel. He also held that divine grace had to be extended to men by God for every aspect of salvation. And so you see the reformers and the pre-reformers stood on the shoulders of men that came before them. Last week, Pastor Jack talked about some of these things and their view of the scripture, the necessity of the scripture. Um, uh, divine grace um, of election. All these things come out of uh, a theology of God as he uh, covenants himself to work within his church. And what are those things that God has given and promised to use for the growth of the Christian? The scripture is foundational to how we understand all things. Grace is of God. So anyone who turns to the Lord has received grace from God to do that. Um, God is sovereign in his decrees. No one can thwart his will. So all of these things come out of somewhat of an Augustinian thought. Okay, I was technical, but necessary. Um, let's transition to the life of John Wycliffe. <clears throat> the life of John Wycliffe. So this is second on your sheet. So Wycliffe was born around about um, 1330, 1330, about 200 miles from London, 
on a sheep farm. So his family owned land in Richmond in Yorkshire where Wycliffe was raised. And actually, we don't know much about his early years apart from the fact that um, he grew up in a sort of secluded country area and he was probably educated by the village um, priest. In 1346, at the age of 16, Wycliffe went off to school at Oxford University, specifically um, Balliol University. So he was 16, but this wasn't uh, really uncommon necessarily. It was pretty common because uh, education and scholasticism was different then than it is now. There is, this isn't in my notes, but there is a strong uh, pushing and emphasis um, for keeping almost keeping young people uh, young, or this idolatry of youth, I think. Um, and this is a more recent development. You just don't see that in, in history or in, in church history. But um, so he went off to, to Oxford at 16. Um, not long after, actually the following year that he went off to Oxford in 1347, the Black Plague came to Europe. Does anyone know what the Black Plague is? What's that? All right. And you, Lucy, you mentioned something? Right. So, uh, louder. Bubonic plague. Bubonic plague. You want to break bubonic plague down for us? You don't have to. <laughs> it's very bad. <laughs> so the black plague came to Europe. Um, and you can look up the black plague if you, if you want. It was just very, very bad. Um, within a year after that, the plague reached England where 100,000 people died in London alone. Um, and in Wycliffe's native country, more than two-thirds of the population died. So in the area where Wycliffe uh, grew up and uh, was raised, two-thirds of everyone in that area died. So this is really important, it's not just information for the sake of information. It's important because through the devastation of all of that, that was the means that God used to turn Wycliffe to himself. He was sort of struck with the reality of the fleetingness of men, that we are all, we will all face death. And it was that that turned him to the Lord. That was the means by which God saved him through his word, of course. But that was the circumstance, the black plague. So, man, the Lord even uses things as catastrophic as the black plague to save men. So glory be to God for that. So this actually led to his conversion to Christ. And this was at the time where he was at Balliol College. Um, so Wycliffe would eventually become a professor of philosophy at Balliol College. And it was actually during this time that he ended up writing a pamphlet that said that the Pope didn't have the right to require tribute or gifts from the king or the church which was very common at this time. Uh, the Pope would receive um, tribute or gifts from uh, the churches, from kings, whatever those gifts were, some monetary. A lot of times they were other things that were given to the Pope as sort of a tribute. Um, and Wycliffe would write and say, this, this isn't right. This shouldn't be happening. He had biblical reasons for that. Um, and so the king at that time, King Edward III, which was loving that, Wycliffe says, the Pope should not be receiving tribute or gifts from the king or the church. King Edward III is like, all right, come on my team. So he actually brings Wycliffe on his team as a chaplain. So sort of a win for him. 
Uh, Wycliffe continued his education following this, becoming a chaplain with King Edward III. Um, and he would sharpen his theology and philosophy. And he was eventually thought and really seen as the leading theologian and philosopher in Europe. And at that point, Wycliffe was set to represent the King of England with a meeting. So a little more context here. Uh, Wycliffe becomes a chaplain for King Edward III. King Edward III um, uses sort of Wycliffe as someone who would uh, mediate um, different disputes, different um, issues that were happening. So Wycliffe would go in, so he had some involvement in politics. He would go in and sort of mediate between the Pope and whatever king. And Wycliffe, one, at, at one time, uh, represented the King of England with a meeting with papal officers. So basically at this meeting, Wycliffe is trying to sort of negotiate this peace with um, France, while at the same time he's trying to influence things that the Pope are doing over in England. So he's at a meeting, he's meeting with these Popal officers, and he's sort of uh, speaking with them in regards to things that they're doing in England, while at the same time trying to advise them on things that are happening in France. It was coming back from England that he started to address the abuses that, we, that he was seeing in the church. Specifically, he was questioning the abuses of the power of the Pope. He would also eventually write that the authority of the Pope was not biblical. So the Pope, of course, is not happy with this. And so he calls Wycliffe to London to answer for uh, these charges of heresy. But more than heresy at this time, it was sort of um, seditious teaching or rebellious teaching. Your teaching is not in line with the Roman Catholic Church. You're deviating. So they wanted him to give a, an, an answer for this. Wycliffe held that the Bible was the sole foundation of doctrine and no ecclesiastical or church council could add to the teaching of the Bible. And this is where it started to get serious for Wycliffe. Uh, the Pope at that time, Pope Gregory XI, he issued a bull against Wycliffe. So you guys remember what a bull is. Pastor Jack talked about it last week. It's probably in your notes, maybe. A bull. What is a bull? Right, a decree. So not like bull, like Red Bull, but a decree from the Pope in this context. So he issues a bull against Wycliffe where he calls him to answer for these things. So the Pope, now again, heresy or seditious teaching, these things were not like walking through the mall and bumping into someone and turning around and saying, sorry, I apologize. And you just sort of keep it moving. This was, again, it was a federal offense. It was a capital crime. Uh, men were burned at the stake and there were different forms of uh, executions for men who committed heresy because it was standing against the Roman Catholic Church, which they felt you were standing against God. Okay, so that's this decree. This bull was issued against Wycliffe and the Pope wanted Wycliffe brought before him or to Rome to give an account for these things. And basically Wycliffe at that time said, no, um, he did not go to Rome. And he actually ended up agreeing to a temporary house arrest and eventually meeting with the Archbishop of Canterbury. So you have the Pope, the head man, and you have the Archbishop of Canterbury. And so 
uh, Wycliffe did not want to go to stand before the Pope, but he agreed to stand before this Archbishop of Can Canterbury in a local area where he was. Um, and basically, when he met with this bishop, he just, he got a slap on the wrist. It, it wasn't what it could have been. It could have been his punishment for that could have been much worse. But he basically received a slap on the wrist and house arrest. Okay, continuing on in the life of Wycliffe. So Wycliffe, so this is, this is historic content. So I know I'm just sort of working through this. We'll get to the theology, his theology in a bit, but bear with me as I walk through his context so that you can sort of get a picture of his life. Um, so following this slap on the wrist by the Archbishop, Wycliffe goes back home to Oxford where he continues writing and addressing different issues of doctrine and practice within the church. So he begins to reform and he does it not primarily with his mouth, but with his pen, as most reformers did. So we usually think of the reformers as these men who stood on corners and sort of soapboxes and they proclaimed aloud, uh, the Roman Catholic Church is heretical, turn away, follow us, follow this. That's not necessarily what it looked like. <laughs> it was these men did the most damage through their writings with their pen. Um, they knew their theology well, they structured it well, and so they wrote. Uh, they wrote many tracts, they wrote volumes, and all of these things. Uh, some of it was directly against the Roman Catholic Church, but it was a theology, and the theology itself, as it is found in scripture, was the thing that did the damage to the Catholic and the structure, or the structure of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, okay, so he, he wrote, he used his pen in, in his reforming. So through tracts and different writings, he addressed the issues of theology, of the theology of the church, the Roman Catholic Church. So he addresses the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, and he basically calls it religious superstition. So another quiz, transubstantiation. What are we talking about when we say transubstantiation? Eli. Well, specifically, Okay, good stuff. Yes, I saw another hand. Jeremy, you want to add to it? Okay. <laughs> so transubstantiation um, versus consubstantiation. Transubstantiation, the trans, uh, that sort of prefix, meaning um, across, trans and substantiation, substantia, substance. Uh, this transubstantiation, the, the, the bread and the wine at mass or the Eucharist, when it's blessed by the priest, the belief was that it actually becomes, it's translated, trans across, it becomes the, the body of Christ, the blood, the body of Christ. This in, in substance, in essence, versus consubstantiation, con meaning with, um, the recognition of the mystery between the bread and the wine and the body of Christ, but it doesn't become the body of Christ. We recognize the mystery, but we still, maintain the distinction. The bread and the wine is the bread and the wine. The body of Christ is the body of Christ. There's a unique mystical union there, but it does not become the body and blood of Christ. So the Roman Catholic Church held to transubstantiation, which um, Wycliffe would write against. So again, transubstantiation is the belief that the bread and wine of the Eucharist, the Roman Catholic ceremony of the Lord's Supper in which the, bled, the bread and wine are blessed, miraculously changed into the body and the blood of Christ when it is blessed by the priest. When Wycliffe speaks out against the mass, 
and, and the king, it, when, when he speaks out against the Mass and the Eucharist and transubstantiation, the king, who was sort of with him up until that point, even himself pulled back and was like, okay, you're taking it a little too far. Not to go to Mass was a mortal sin. And so he writes against transubstantiation in this understanding of the Lord's table and the Lord's supper. And so he really, people, they start pulling these authorities that he had, because again, Wycliffe was involved in politics. These authorities that he had behind him and with him started to pull back because this was a huge issue and doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, are y'all, y'all following me to this point? Okay. All right, any, I saw a hand. Okay. Right. 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 So the. Right. So. Right. Right. If, if I'm hearing you, and I, I think I am. So the the bread and the wine. Um, do not, he's saying they, they don't literally become um, blood and cells and those things like that. But they will maintain that they, they, they remain the bread and the wine. Right, so they remain, they have the appearance of the bread and the wine, but the, in, in transubstantiation, they would still maintain that they are the body and blood of Christ. So they uh, retain the appearance of, of blood and wine. Right, so thank you. That's how I appreciate it. Okay. How much time do I have? All right, we're good. So continuing with the life of Wycliffe, eventually that Archbishop in Canterbury that Wycliffe stood trial um, before the first time um, when he called him to Rome, that Archbishop called a council to examine Wycliffe's doctrines again, and he, he condemned Wycliffe and told him to appear before the Pope again. Wycliffe again refused, but instead of... Um, going sort of into a hiding or going to meet with the Pope, he goes to an area called Lutterworth. So this sort of small town um, in near, near London there. So it was eventually during this time that Wycliffe finished his translation of the Bible into English. Um, that's a huge part of, I think, our understanding of Wycliffe and his theology, which I won't touch on um, a ton. There's an area, um, is it Wycliffe International? The, the building over in... Uh, where is it? Where is it? Lake Hart. Okay, Lake Hart. I was thinking Avalon for some reason. But there's a, 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 a company or, I don't know, a foundation or whatever, uh, Wycliffe, where they sort of uh, emphasize and specialize in Wycliffe's um, study and his teaching and specifically the translation of the Bible. So they do a lot for trying to get the Bible into hands of people in different countries who don't have the Bible in their language. And you see why, as, you, as we talk about Wycliffe's doctrine on the 
importance of the word in his translation of the Bible. But it was during this time in Lutterworth where Wycliffe uh, finished his translation of translating the Bible into English. So this really came out of his conviction about the divine inspiration of scripture and the need for the English people to read it in their own native tongue. Listening to Wycliffe's words on this, he says, it is important for any part of the Holy Scriptures, it is impossible, sorry, for any part of the Holy Scriptures to be wrong. And Holy Scripture is all the truth. One part of Scripture explains another. Wycliffe said the Bible is superior to all other books because its author is Christ. As the person of one author is superior to another, so is the merit of one book compared to another. So it is a doctrine of the faith that Christ is infinitely superior to any other man and therefore his holy book or holy scriptures, which is his law, stands in a similar relation to every other writing which can be named. The Bible is superior. It's in a class of its own is what he's saying. The Roman Catholic Church used uh, Jerome's Latin Vulgate, Vulgate meaning vulgar uh, or common language, not vulgar in crude words, bad words, but vulgar meaning common. They used the Latin Vulgate and refused to translate it into the language of the people. Wycliffe actually didn't know the biblical languages. He didn't know Greek or Hebrew, so he had to use this translation of the Latin version. So he, he did his translation from the Latin Vulgate, not the Greek and the Hebrew. And we talked about that in our last um, Sunday school class series in Bibliology. I won't get into it again, but you can go back and listen to it. I think it's in the interpretation of Scripture. Um, so he translated from this, this Latin version, the Latin Vulgate. So he had two versions of the English Bible. These two were associated with, with Wycliffe. One was in 1384, and it was a literal rendering of the Latin Vulgate. And there was another, which was a more thorough revision of the earlier one, which used a more, a more common um, language that were better known to the English-speaking persons. And that was produced actually after his death, and it was um, in between 388 and three, um, 1388 and 1395 ish, um, and it was um, actually done by his colleague uh, John Purvey. So, if you want to note that, okay. So, some of Wycliffe's writings. I'm going to say some of these, and then you can let me know if you recognize. So, they're in Latin. So, I'm going to say them in Latin. We're going to play a little game. We'll see if you can recognize what I'm saying. I'll probably butcher it, so I hope you're good at Latin. Okay, summa, summa deinte. Anybody know what that means? What's that? Something God's done. No, but that was a good guess. Um, on being, <laughs> on the being of man. <laughs> at, least, you know, at, least, at least you spoke up, that's good. De civili dominio. Anybody? De civili dominio. Dominion, I heard. Who said dominion? Okay. Yes. On civil dominion. Everybody's like, God something. God in the church, God is. That's funny. Okay, so this is the easier one. De ecclesia. On the church. Yes. Ah, killing over here. Yes, on the church. Um, uh, De Verite Sacra Scripturae. On the truth of Scripture. 
Sacred yes. Good job. The truth of sacred scripture. Y'all know Latin, it seems, or something. Um, I'm gonna try to get this right. De Pontestate Pote. That's a hard one, and I probably butchered it. But <laughs> De Pontestate Pape. Yes. Okay, I butchered it, but when I said it right, y'all got it. On the power of the Pope. Another one. Confessio. Confession. De apostasio. On apostasy. Somebody over here is killing it right now. And Jeremy, you too. Um, that's it. You did good. Continuing. That was a fun little game. On De Civili Dominio, Wycliffe said that, in, said that if clergymen were not in a state of grace um, or a condition of being in favor, in God's favor, or one of his elect, they should have their endowments removed from them by the civil power. So by taking this position that those clergy who are not in a state of grace or elect or favored by God should have their power taken from them, he's hoping to reform the Roman Catholic Church by stripping it of its power, which he believed was the source of its corruption. So this uh, receiving these um, tributes and gifts or monetary things, he believed was the source of its corruption. Wycliffe also wrote on the pastoral office. Wycliffe said, a priest should live, and I love this, a priest should live holily in prayer and desires and thought and godly conversation and honest teaching having God's commandments and his gospel ever on his lips and his deeds be so righteous that no man may be able to cause with cause to find fault in him not uh, sinful perfection he's saying he's just saying live above reproach and so open his acts that they may be a true book to all sinful and wicked men to serve God. For the example of a good life stirreth men more than true preaching with only the naked word. Um, so preach, but live above reproach is what he's saying. Proclaim the word, yes, and power by God's grace. But make sure your life is one worthy of the calling. Okay. Oh, I had pictures of it, which I didn't put up. Can you see that? Wycliffe. <laughs> I didn't draw that, but this is John Wycliffe. Oh, I thought it was Pete over the beard. <laughs> <laughs> this is the, y'all can talk afterwards. <laughs> he said he thought it was you with the beard, Pito. That's Pito with the beard. This is Wycliffe. Okay. The theology of Wycliffe. So this is where y'all are waiting to get to. So here we go. His theology. Wycliffe was grounded in the gospel. Um, it was said of Wycliffe in an age when all sides of the debate equated novelty with heresy, that is new ideas with heresy, Wycliffe presented some very old ideas in a new and even radical way. Wycliffe said the ancient truths were centered on the evangelical gospel by which we may enter into the, the straight gate as Christ our Savior and all that follow him have done. Now, Lorraine Botner adds, Wycliffe was a reformer of the Calvinistic type. Wycliffe was before Calvin, but what he's saying here is he's a reformer of the Calvinistic type, proclaiming the absolute sovereignty of God and the full ordination of all things. His system of belief was very similar to that which was later taught by Luther and Calvin. Like the reformers, Wycliffe zealously held to the doctrines of grace. So, 
What about Wycliffe's theology? What did he teach? What did he write? What about his theology caused him to be condemned um, as a heretic by the Roman Catholic Church? Now, when we think about the reformers and the pre-reformers, at times we think, uh, we think about them in a Hollywood way. So we think that they were all in line on every aspect of their doctrine or online and they sort of stood in a line as we see the monuments, they stood in a line all with their Bible saying, this is what we believe with one voice about any particular topic um, or of theology. That wasn't necessarily the case. There were differences in their theology. And there were even things that we would not agree with in some of their theology. Um, some not uh, primary things, but some pretty big secondary issues that we would not agree with. So just I, I want to give us a, a more um, mature and centered picture of the reformers, not, not sort of a Hollywood picture. Um, but Wycliffe was seen as the morning star of the Reformation because he was the pre-reformer who sort of set uh, in place in some areas of theology some things that those who came after him would follow as he stood on the shoulders of men that came before him. Okay, first, on divine sovereignty. Wycliffe affirmed that God brought all things into being by his infinite power. He writes, we should believe that God the Father, being almighty, without being, without beginning and ending, made heaven and earth and all the creatures of not, or from nothing, through his word. Ex nihilo. Also, Christ rules over all things by the Father's appointment. He says, Christ is the supreme Lord, while the Pope is a man and liable to mortal sin. And while in mortal sin, according to divines, is unfitted for dominion. So he's addressing the uh, character and the nature of God while comparing it with these men who uh, saw themselves as God's appointed men, uh, the Pope. And he's saying, um, you're not, essentially. Wycliffe taught on the sovereignty of God in this way. He said, nothing can hinder the decrees of the sovereign God. He writes, let it be certain that God has predetermined an event and the result is beyond all accident. It must follow. Now, um, now, what could hinder the preordination of events on the part of God? His knowledge is perfect. On, total, on radical depravity, that should sound familiar, um, Wycliffe held to the doctrine of total depravity. So he rightly traces the problem of man's sin back to Adam. The first Adam, Wycliffe said, was without excuse when he sinned. He writes, God bade Adam not to eat of the apple, but he broke God's command. And he, has not excused, and he was not excused therein, neither by his own folly or weakness or by Eve, nor by the serpent. And thus, by the righteousness of God, this sin must always be punished. By his sin, Adam fell into a state of death. Wycliffe writes, Adam indulged pride so as to bring death upon himself voluntarily. But Adam's sin was imputed to all men so that his penalty fell on all his descendants. Sounds like federal headship. When the first man sinned, the entire human race suffered. That's basically what that means. Wycliffe stated, by Adam all die. The act of one man brought death to the many. He adds, man was ruined by the forbidden fruit of the tree. This ruin, Wycliffe taught, affects every faculty of the man, mind, emotion, and will. Now, these are in the writings of Wycliffe. Regarding the mind, Wycliffe writes, we are all sinners, not only from our birth, 
but before, that we cannot so much as think a good thought. Ultimately, to think what he says, ultimately, I think what he's saying here is, we're not sinners, we've heard this before probably, we're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we are sinners, right? It's in our nature. With Adam as our federal head, we, we stand in the line of Adam as our federal head. We do what he did, um, essentially. Um, also, Wycliffe maintains that man's will is held captive. Wicked men are called the kingdom of the devil, for he reigns in them, and they do his will. The sum of all this, Wycliffe teaches, is that man is the most fallen of creatures and the unkindest of all creatures that ever God made. Man is in a depraved state of radical depravity. That's pretty weighty and would have been radical to its ears. Next, of sovereign election. Wycliffe taught that the church, that the true church of God is made up, and I love this phrase, those predestined to eternal life, the household of the predestined. Not necessarily those who claim membership in the physical church, in the the visible church. Concerning election and predestination, it is said that he stresses, he stressed election as a key theological concept and viewed the church as the community of the elect. And I like this quote by him. He says, although the church is spoken of in many ways through scripture, I think we can conceive of it as, in, in its best known sense, this phrase, the congregation of all the predestined. Wycliffe affirmed that election is unmerited, not based on any foreseen goodness in the one chosen. He writes, predestination is God's chief gift most freely given. So no one can merit his own predestination. Election is entirely by grace, Wycliffe insisted, not of any good works. So you can see why the Roman Catholic Church would have a problem with this. Um, again, these men did damage through their pen as they held to uh, the, the teaching of the word. So we're trying to, again, get an overview here, a bird's eye view of Wycliffe's theology. Um, and a lot of my Sunday school classes on bibliology and hermeneutics, I described it as trying to get a tour of New York in an hour. We have to do the same thing here with Wycliffe because it, it's a lot here, but we're just sort of driving by Disney and we look at it and enjoy the ride as they're on it. Okay, so an overview again. Um, where'd I stop at? So his writings and preaching, through his writings and preaching, you can see here his theology, which I think is a biblical theology. Um, and you see it repeated throughout the Reformation, not only in Germany, but also in Switzerland and other places. And we'll look at the Reformation in those different places throughout this class, throughout this Sunday School series. Um, next, on, in, on irresistible grace. Again, we're getting a view of Wycliffe's theology. Wycliffe made known the sovereign regeneration of God, which gives life to the elect, causing them to believe in Jesus Christ. Regarding the new birth, he states, God himself is certainly the first cause and the only cause of predestination. He said that God must overcome man's resistance in order for salvation to be received. Not that God is struggling with the man as if the man's powerful in sin and God's powerful and they're going back and forth. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he's building off of what he said in radical depravity, that man has fallen and God himself intervenes to save the the man over and above his sinfulness. Um, Wycliffe writes, Lord Jesus, turn us to you and we shall be turned. Sort of a prayer here. 
Heal us and we shall be verily holy. For without grace and help from you, may no man be truly turned or healed. No man can turn to Christ until he is turned by him, he says. He adds that even saving faith is a gift of God. We see that in Ephesians. Ephesians 2, I think it is. Faith is a gift of God, and so God gives it not to man unless he gives it graciously. Or, what he's saying is, unless he gives it of his grace or by his grace. Okay? Lastly, um, and if you've sort of seen where I'm going here, you can probably guess the last one. A persevering grace. Wycliffe writes, we are predestined that we may obtain divine acceptance. And it appears that this grace, which is called the grace of predestination, with the charity of final perseverance, cannot by any means fail. He adds, predestination cannot be lost since it is the foundation of glorification or beatitude, which cannot be lost, or, sorry, or beatitude, which cannot be lost either. So Wycliffe was clear on the immutable nature of grace. Okay? So again, a peek into Wycliffe's theology. So 31 years after Wycliffe died, around 1415, the Council of Constance, which I have a picture of somewhere here, bam, that's the Council of Constance. Probably not, but it's a nice painting of what could have been the Council of Constance. The Council of Constance was an ecumenical council which was recognized by the Roman Catholic Church. So. This uh, is actually the same council that condemned Huss, which we'll talk about next week, when he was burned at the stake. Uh, this council together ordered for Wycliffe's writings, so this is after he's dead, 30-something years after he's dead, they ordered that Wycliffe's writings be burned and that his bones be exhumed or dug up and put out of consecrated ground. So they want him sort of put out of the camp, so to speak. Um, and finally, in 1428, the Pope ordered that Wycliffe's remains be dug up, burned, and his ashes scattered into a river. So this was to do uh, damage to Wycliffe, which is crazy because he's uh, <laughs> in glory um, when this is happening. But you think about the person who had to dig up his remains. That would have been worse for them than for anybody. They dig it up, they burn it along with his writings, and they dump it into the Swift River. So again, it was a federal offense. The Swift River is a river near the town of Lutterworth in England where Wycliffe spent his last few years. Philip Chaff says in one of his volumes on the history of the Christian church, Philip Chaff is an excellent church historian, you should pick up his volume if you can. They're free electronically. Um, this is what he says. He says, they burnt the bones to the ashes and cast them into the Swift a neighboring brook running hard by. Thus the brook was conveyed, has conveyed his ashes into the Avon, the Avon into the Severn, the Severn into the narrow seas, and they into the main ocean. And thus the ashes of Wycliffe are the emblem of his doctrine which is now dispersed into the whole world. This brook into this creek, this creek into this wider body of water, that wider body of, wider body of water into the ocean. And so it is said that Wycliffe's bones were more easily rejected than his lasting influence. It's really nice, poetic. Um, so, a great preacher himself, in closing here, Wycliffe commissioned men to preach throughout England. He called them the order of poor priests, but Wycliffe's enemies called them lollards, lollards, L-O-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L
A-R-D-S. Oh, that's a picture of his ashes being scattered into the river. And then uh, the lollards, maybe, a picture of them. So these lollards, um, a lollard was a word to really mock them. Their enemies called them lollards. Lollards meant a mumbler or an idler, um, like Christians being called Christians uh, in the early church, um, thinking it's a way for to, to mock them, although Christians is a good thing. Um, but it was really in this way that, Cliff, that Wycliffe's teachings continued throughout preaching, throughout, through preachers that followed his example in preaching. What did they preach? They preached the obedience of Christ, reliance on the Bible as the guide to Christian living, and they preached simplicity and worship. So um, simplicity and worship, not simple worship, as some of you may be thinking, um, but simplicity and worship over and against all these ceremonies and feasts or the ceremonies and um, different uh, embellishments of the worship in the Roman Catholic Church. So simplicity and worship in that sense. He's saying we don't need all of that, which could have some ties to simple worship. Um, but again, it's over and against the Roman Catholic Church. Um, they rejected the mass and the supremacy of the Pope. They also denied that an organized church was necessary for salvation. Again, he's not speaking of the church, the body of Christ, as we gather on the Lord's Day. Um, he's speaking of, again, we have to keep it in context, the Roman Catholic Church. So, under persecution, these men, the Lollards, carried Wycliffe's teachings to different places. Some to Bohemia in Central Europe. I'm not sure where that is, but it's in Central Europe somewhere. Um, there, his writings impacted another pre-reformer whose name was John Huss. So Wycliffe, known as the grandfather of the Reformation or the morning star of the Reformation, through his stance and writings shine as this light and the dark backdrop of the Roman Catholic Church in the 14th century. It is often said that the light shines brightest when, it, when the night is darkest. And Wycliffe is sort of proves that that is true as God powerfully uses him um, in the church for the preservation of sound teaching and theology over and against the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, so that's what I have for us this week on Wycliffe.